Good morning, everyone. I'm uh, Dave Deptula, Dean of the Mitchell Institute, and today we're very pleased to host the Air Force Deputy Chief of Staff for Operations, Lieutenant General James Slife. Now, it's no secret that the Air Force faces major challenges as it seeks to meet surging demands around the world with an aircraft inventory that's the oldest and smallest in Air Force history. To the service's credit, is trying to reset these forces with a major modernization effort that touches every mission area. But it'll take years to get those new aircraft on the flight line. Even then, we need to buy new aircraft at the levels demanded by the national defense strategy. Until that day arrives, sometime after 2040, given current resourcing levels, we need to make the most of our current inventory to deter adversaries from aggression. This means the Air Force requires war-winning concepts of operation with what we have if conflict happens to erupt tomorrow. That's exactly why I'm really glad we have people like Lieutenant General Jim Slife in Air Force leadership positions today. As Deputy Chief of Staff for Operations, Lieutenant General Slife oversees the development and implementation of policy directly supporting global operations, force management, training, and readiness. Said more simply, when the combatant commands one air power, Lieutenant General Slife's a key player who ensures air power gets to them. Now, prior to his current role, he headed Air Force Special Operations Command, so he understands exactly what that takes. So, Jim, thanks very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, and what I'd like to do to kick things off is to hand the mic over to you to give us a couple of opening remarks, and then we'll jump into questions. Well, thanks very much, sir. Good to see you again. Good to be back at the Mitchell Institute. Uh, so it's a really fascinating time to be able to join the team at Headquarters Air Force. Uh, the Chief of Staff um, has been pretty clear in his focus on accelerating change, and I think there's a great historical context for that. Uh, when you rewind the clock about a half a century, 50 years ago, we were coming out of the Vietnam War, and I think from that time to the present, there have been four major points in our nation's history where the threat and the strategic environment have changed kind of right under our feet, and the Air Force had to adapt itself for that new strategic environment. The first one of those, of course, was at the end of the Vietnam War. After a prolonged counterinsurgency campaign, um, you know, we came home from Vietnam, and we found that our pacing challenge at the time was the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe. And we didn't have an Air Force that was trained or ready uh, to fight that fight if called on to do so. And so uh, we undertook a host of changes uh, to our Air Force through the uh, remainder of the 1970s and into the 1980s. And so that period of time, I would say, was characterized by recapitalization. We, we got into fourth generation fighters, F-15s, F-16s. Uh, we pioneered stealth technology. We fielded the F-117. The Air Force invested heavily in precision guide, guided munitions, uh, ground-moving target indicator uh, platforms with our, um, with our Joint Stars uh, platforms. All of these investments uh, were kind of on the hardware side. And then on the training and readiness side, uh, heavy investment in the flag programs, uh, starting with red flag, but certainly expanding beyond that to green flag, checkered flag. There was a whole series of these flag programs intended to improve the, the readiness of our force. Uh, investments in the, in the, at the time, the fighter weapons school. And so training and readiness, uh, as we got into the 1980s, we began to refill our sustainment supplies. And so we saw an uptick in readiness there. And really that Air Force that we built after the end of the Vietnam War was an Air Force that served us pretty well for a decade and a half or so until we got to uh, a couple of key events. The first one, of course, was, was Desert Storm, which was a uh, um, really put all of this investment in readiness and, and capability on display for the world. And it was a, it was a really remarkable air power story uh, that manifests during Desert Storm. But then the other thing that happened about this same time, of course, was the end of the Cold War. And the wall came down. And that ushered in a second one of these strategic inflection points where, once again, the environment and the threat were changing and the Air Force had to change along with it. And so we go into a, a decade of the 1990s where procurement uh, largely stops, the Air Force uh, and all the services are drawn down 
as we were living in a unipolar moment in our in our history where we were the sole superpower at the time. And so there was this idea that uh, we didn't need to invest so heavily in, in defense spending uh, during that period of time. And so air, air power became kind of the nation's per, preferred tool for coercive diplomacy. And this period of time is characterized by things like Northern Watch and Southern Watch and deny flight and operations in the Balkans and all of, the, all of those uh, things. And by the end of the decade, I think we had come to the conclusion that this unipolar moment was not going to last forever, and we needed to invest once again in uh, research development, procurement. But then we came to a third one of these inflection points, which of course was 9-11. And in the aftermath of 9-11, again, the security environment changed. The nation focused heavily on ground operations in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, and things that would support those operations on the ground, heavy investment and in unmanned ISR, uh, the, the curtailment of procurement of F-22s as you know, our premier air superiority platform uh, took place during this period of time. And then in the, in the uh, last decade, sequestration uh, came about and you know, had a big impact on Air Force investment. And so this really characterized that 20-year period, which culminated with our withdrawal from Afghanistan and really the, the end of large-scale combat operations in the Mideast and, and South Asia. Uh, but we once again find ourselves at one of these strategic inflection points, and it's captured in our national defense strategy. If you look at our pacing challenges around the globe, uh, the Air Force that we have employed for the last 20 or 30 years is not the Air Force we need to succeed in the environment as we face it today. And so when the chief talks about accelerating change, this is what we're accelerating to. And it's an exciting time to be a part of the uh, leadership team of the United States Air Force. Thanks for having me here. You know, that's a magnificent rundown in terms of where we've been and, and where we are. Uh, so um, thanks for that. Um, as I mentioned earlier in my remarks, and you alluded to it in yours, um, we're living in an era where there's a demand for air power that is increasing, but at the same time, we have to meet the needs uh, that the current combatant commanders are looking for. Uh, could you talk to the audience and share with us how you view balancing the kind of demands that we have to be prepared for for the future at the same time meeting current COCOM demand? You bet. I, you know, we often frame these things in terms of uh, the tension between mission and resources. You know, there's no shortage of mission around the globe. The combatant commanders asking for air power at a, you know, at a uh, high rate um, and resources are limited. And so we have to balance how much are we investing in um, meeting the requirements of today while also preparing for, uh, for uh, what may come upon us in the future. And, you know, I think those are two parts of the equation, but the third part of the equation is the part that often gets overlooked. I think there is a, a constant tension between not just mission and resources, but risk as well. And so risk manifests over time. And so you can absolutely consume the Air Force today uh, but what that does is it, it buys you risk in the future. Uh, at the same time, you could, you could you know, keep the Air Force in the hangar and you could preserve it for tomorrow and that would buy you unsustainable risk in the present. And so one of the, the major challenges we have is figuring out how to effectively communicate in an unemotional fashion what the risk is uh, both today and also to the future as the force, uh, as the joint force uh, has an insatiable demand for elements of air power. And so that, that articulation of risk is, a, is kind of a major challenge. To get after that, uh, we've been pretty disciplined about the implementation of a force generation process, uh, an air force force generation process that allows you to articulate risk and capacity to the joint force in a way that uh, has in, in some cases eluded us in the past. I mean, you know from your own experience, uh, I do as well, you know, the answer to can you fly one more MQ-9 line, uh, the answer to that is always yes. Uh, but, the, but the question is, at what risk? What does, what does flying one more line or, or one more, deploying one more squadron, what does that do to us in the long term? And so 
that's really what the Air Force fourth generation cycle is uh, intended to get after. Yeah, a bit of a follow-up on that. Um, uh, is this new fourth generation concept uh, gaining acceptance, or let me put it this way, gaining understanding inside the building? And then the second part of that is how about on the Hill? I think uh, certainly on the inside the building, I think it, by and large, most uh, most folks understand what a force generation cycle is. In fact, you know the other services, in some ways, are more mature about this than than the Air Force has historically been. And so, you know, if you want to know what the cost of uh, deploying one more aircraft carrier is, the Navy can lay it out for you, and they can tell you what it's going to do to the nuclear power plant. You know, right. maintenance cycle two years from now. Uh, if you want to deploy one more brigade combat team, you know, the Army can unemotionally tell you exactly what that's going to cost you, both in terms of readiness today, but also readiness tomorrow. So um, I think by and large in the building, as, as long as you lay it out in a transparent way and say, hey, look, here's our capacity. This is what we have available. Here's where it all is. What is the priority? It just forces the department uh, to make priorities. Well, like anything, it'll take a bit of time uh, to catch on, but uh, that's great to hear. Now, now, building off of this discussion, some of the past leadership um, have explained that the Air Force is relatively unique amongst the services. Look, all the services are unique, I get it. Um, but it, it, its capabilities and capacity is going to be in demand regardless of whether there's a conflict in Europe or the Pacific. Um, the same is not necessarily true to the same degree with um, our sister services, the, the Army and the, and the Navy, the Navy being pr pretty heavily involved in the Pacific, Army pretty heavily involved in the uh, in a European conflict. Uh, but the bottom line is we see it, the Air Force is always going to have a demand in either one or both of these theaters. Uh, and in the context of force sizing, what are your thoughts on that subject? Um, well, you know, about 30 years ago, uh, we, we had a paper that was written uh, for the Air Force. You may remember it. It was called Regional Reach, Regional Power. Wait, no, no, that's not it. <laughs> Wait, what was that thing called again? Global Reach. Ah, Global Reach, Global Power. That's what it was. <laughs> well, you know, that is the nature of our Air Force. It is a global Air Force. And so the priorities may shift. Uh, whether it's CENTCOM on one day or Indo-PACOM on another day or UCOM, depending on what's going on in the world. And again, that's why it's so imperative for us to be able to talk about risk and capacity in an unemotional way. I, I mentioned risk briefly, but you know, when it comes to capacity, what we need is for the COCOMs to uh, not argue with the Air Force, but to argue for the Air Force, you know, and being able to uh, unemotionally lay out our capacity and say, look, if you want more Air Force, we're going to have to buy more Air Force because this is all the Air Force we have. Uh, so that, um, you know, it's a matter of prioritization and being transparent with the Joint Force so they understand this is what we have available. That's great. Uh, great answer, and we're doing our best to help you make that case. Um, uh, along that same lines, um, as I mentioned, you're very well uh, in the midst of this. The Air Force is engaged in a major modernization campaign with fighters and bombers and tankers and trainers and more. Uh, but we're not just acquiring new replacements for older systems. We're looking at entirely new ways of achieving mission results. Um, one of the names that's out there right now are new capabilities are labeled collaborative combat aircraft. That maybe part of the solution to filling some of the capacity challenges that we have. Um, how do you see these new concepts uh, evolving and, and sort of where are they in the development process? Well, I think this is a, this is a case where uh, the technology is moving along at pace and we've got to make sure our thinking keeps up with the pace of technology. Uh, in other words, uh, you mentioned force sizing earlier. So what, what are the impacts of collaborative combat aircraft uh, to our force sizing? And the answer is we, we don't know yet. We don't know uh, what does a future fighter squadron look like? Is it, you know, six manned airplanes and, you know, uh, 18 unmanned uh, platforms of some uh, sort? Uh, we have to kind of work through a lot of our, our conceptual work on this before we can say for sure this is what the implication is going to be. I think we broadly understand 
that they're going to be transformative in many ways, but uh, it's going to take more exercises and war games and uh, things of that nature for us to kind of try out concepts, see what works, what doesn't work, where they have greatest utility, and bring those capabilities you know, into relevant formations based on what we learned from our experimentation activities. Bit of a follow-up, um, one of the, the, the training arenas that uh, one can gather information about new concepts and experimentation is um, out at Nellis, whether it be red flags, whether it be operational test evaluation, weapon schools. Um, have you thought about getting some of these new collaborative combat aircraft and sending them out there and putting them in the hands of operators to see what they come up with? We have, and uh, I think we're, we're anxious to do that. What we're finding, though, particularly as we, you know, we're now a mature operator of fifth-generation platforms, uh, we're, we're moving along on sixth-generation uh, type technologies. I think one of the things that, that we're finding is that there are a lot of capabilities of those platforms that our existing test and training infrastructure doesn't really support. You know, we don't have uh, the airspace that you need, even in our largest ranges, uh, to be able to effectively employ those platforms the way they have the capability to be employed. Furthermore, there are some capabilities that uh, we don't want to expose uh, in, the, in the open air environment. And so increasingly, we're, we're putting thought into what is the future of our operational test and training infrastructure look like and how much of that migrates to synthetic environments where uh, we can actually employ all the capabilities at threat representative ranges uh, in a way that we can't uh, at, at existing open air ranges that we have. And so uh, we have absolutely thought of that and that, you know, uh, actually employing the platforms, uh, real hardware with real pilots in real airspace, I mean, that's going to be uh, that's going to be a part of it, but I think before we get to that point, we, we will have done significant synthetic modeling to understand um, kind of where those capabilities are best used. No, that's great, and obviously where we are in the context of uh, processing power uh, allows us to do that, so it's great to hear that the Air Force is capitalizing on that whole new venue in the information age. Now, uh, kind of moving along the the, the direction we were talking about earlier with force, uh, forces and force size, um, right now the Air Force still really doesn't have a force sizing methodology. Uh, and uh, some of us believe that until it gets one, uh, that it can use publicly to clearly and simply explain the tie between national defense strategy and the tools and equipment that we need, our force structure requirements, um, it's going to continue to face challenges. Uh, this isn't the same thing as the force generation model, and you know that, but uh, for our audience, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, because for too long, our force size has been driven by the budget, not strategy. So my question is, is the Air Force considering resurrecting some serious thought on this particular issue or topic? Uh, uh, unequivocally, yes, uh, is the answer to your question. I'll, I'll elaborate just a little bit. You know, I think there is a... a understanding that we need a force sizing construct, but the predicate to a force sizing construct is a force presentation construct, right? So when I talk about a force presentation construct, what is the thing that the Air Force presents to the joint force? Is it a wing? Is it a squadron? Is it fighter squadrons? Is, what, what is the unit of measure uh, that, we, that we need to um, adopt? Because once I know what the thing is that we're going to present, then we can have a conversation about, well, how many of those things do we need? And what does a force generation process imply with respect to how many of those we have in a training cycle before we deploy one of those things, whether it's a wing or a group or an air division or a task force of some kind? You know, this idea of a force presentation construct has got a lot of traction right now. In fact, uh, when I uh, checked on board in December, the chief of staff gave me a letter uh, with some very specific expectations that he had of me, and one of them uh, was to was to lead us towards a force presentation uh, construct, and I and that's obviously the predicate to being able to talk about what our uh, capacity, our force size and construct needs to be. No, very good. So that's 
kind of takes us in what I was going to ask next was uh, organizational construct, which is essentially is what you're talking about. I mean, for a long time, uh, for decades, really, we have passed and we really haven't adapted that. You can go all the way back to, I don't want to drag this conversation down, but we can talk about history and going all the way back to World War II as perhaps the way and the basis for why we're organized in terms of the structure that we're at. And perhaps given the kinds of changes that we're seeing, We've got to take a fresh look at organization. Is that what you're talking about? It, it is. And, you know, that you can have that conversation at lots of different levels, right? We can talk about what is the organization of a wing. It's the wing that, that the thing that we're going to deploy as our basic fighting element or our squadrons, what we're going to deploy. Uh, so, for example, right now, uh, when the joint force asks for uh, one of the force elements called a fighter squadron. The expectation is that we're going to deploy uh, 12 airplanes. Well, as you know, you know from uh, a set of stone tablets that came down from Mount Sinai, uh, we know that an Air Force fighter squadron is is 24 airplanes. Um, and so, how does that fit with this idea that the joint force is asking for? things that come in 12s, because it's not as simple as 24 is 2 times 12, therefore you've got 2, because you have to resource your, your maintenance spares kits and all that kind of stuff to be able to support two independent uh, packages out of that squadron. So all of this comes down to, to force presentation. And so down at the very tactical level, we're doing some work there, but there has been work done at a more conceptual level about the institution of the United States Air Force. It is our um, is our uh, overarching organizing construct uh, that we adopted at the end of the at the end of the Cold War under General McPeak's leadership? Is that still the right uh, organizing construct? I, I think those are very nascent conversations. I don't think there's uh, anything coming in the in the you know foreseeable future on that. But but the discussions are are taking place, and I think. It's important that we always, you know, kind of go revisit those fundamental assumptions we made to make sure they're still valid assumptions. Uh, and so that that's always taken place. No, that's great to hear. I mean, well, there might be a need for a little bit of modification. I'd suggest to you that right now, and over the last 20, 30 years, actually it's 30 years now, going further, with the one boss, one base construct, what we've really been doing is turning our wing commanders to be more like city managers than um, actually warfighters. So perhaps it may be time to relook splitting back into a mission support commander versus a wing commander who controls um, the actual gener not just generation, but employment of those aircraft. But be that as it may, there's a lot going on. So appreciate to hear that. Now, we live in an era where the sorts of capabilities that we need for a high-end fight, things like fifth-gen fighters and our new stealth bomber, uh, as well as our old one too, uh, are in incredibly short supply. Uh, could you talk to us a little bit about how you manage those finite assets and how that might inform the way ahead in terms of procurement of, you mentioned newer generation aircraft, but just thinking about that high-end fight, how does that affect your thinking as we move forward? So uh, this is precisely the thing that a, a force generation model will enable us to do is talk about capacity available for uh, committing those kind of scarce resources. Uh, and so I think, you know, that's really at the basis of, of the answer to your question. But there's another aspect to it as well, which is uh, it gets back to this operational test and training infrastructure. You know, there, there have been developments in technology that cause us to wonder whether the training model that we have historically employed for, for all of our platforms is that, you know, if you want to train an F-15 pilot, you have to fly an F-15 to, you know, learn how to fly an F-15. But increasingly, the flying the platform is not the hard part. Increasingly, in our fifth and, and beyond uh, generation platforms, uh, it's the employment of the of the mission systems, the integration of the sensors that becomes the, the more challenging part of that. And so to what extent do you actually need to be in an F-35 to train as an F-35 pilot? How much of that can be done in a synthetic environment? How much of that could be done in a lower cost per flying hour uh, companion uh, trainer 
that is wired to produce augmented reality threats and, and so forth that, you know, the cockpit looks like an F-35 cockpit. It's just not an F-35, but it's all software. And so, uh, you know, this idea of holistic relook of how we do uh, high-end training um, is really something that uh, we're in the early stages of. But I think it. I think that is going to have an effect on, um, on really how we think about training in all our our new platforms. No, very good. Appreciate that. Um, on a related subject, um, lots of media reports out there on the number of hours Air Force pilots are budgeted to fly is on a downward uh, trajectory, um, and you know, you and I both know those numbers. Are a lot lower than when we were both lieutenants, and um, I preceded you by many, many years. I won't say decades, but a <laughs> bunch of years. Um, so, how's the Air Force working to manage this readiness challenge in terms of numbers of flying hours that folks are getting? Yeah. So, you know, this is one of the key metrics that uh, that the chief is paying attention to, and uh, you know, the things that the Chief finds mildly interesting. I find fascinating, and uh, as you would expect, as the A3, this is something that that I'm spending a lot of time on. And here's here's the upshot of it: is that we know what the variables are that ultimately affect how many hours a pilot flies per month. It's our weapon system sustainment funding. You know, how much money are we putting into the depot enterprise? Our uh, repairables and, and those types of things. It's our flying hour program funding. How do we how do we pay for hours that we intend to fly this year? Fuel, uh, consumable spare parts, and those types of things. Uh, the the number of pilots that we have, the number of maintainers that we have, uh, and how we code our aircraft. Meaning how you know how many of them are are dedicated to training. How many of them are intended to cover depot inputs and those types of things. The inputs are, are well known. What we have lacked up to this point is an accurate way to describe uh, what the effect of changes on those large levers are on the ultimate output of aircrew flying hours per month. And so, you know, if you ask me about weapon system sustainment funding, uh, I can tell you that more is good and less is bad. Uh, but if you ask me how much will a cut of X number of dollars affect our aircrew flying hours per month, I can't tell you. And so, you know, at the end of the day, when we're balancing the budget, a lot of times those high-dollar accounts like weapon system sustainment funding and flying hour program funding are often the things that are, uh, are tapped uh, to balance the budget, and we haven't been able to articulate what the impact of that is on our readiness. And so... Uh, we're, we're, we've undertaken a fairly involved uh, data analytic uh, effort uh, to map all of those inputs to the to the outputs that we want to inform the budgeting decisions that our secretary needs to make every year. So that you know, if he says, "Hey, what's going to be the impact of cutting funding by this amount?" Right. I can tell him exactly what it is, and I can also tell him where to cut it in order to do the least damage to our readiness. Right. And so. Uh, we, we've got a number of models uh, built out. Every platform's different. Uh, we've got several of them built, and, and we're uh, working towards the whole Air Force on that. Well, thanks for that. On a related topic, um, the Air Force is still faces a pretty severe pilot shortfall, um, and we're in a time of peace. So I know you and others in the Air Force are working that challenge, but what are some of the things that affect the way you think about and how you address that problem to assure that we get into a conflict, we have sufficient, not just airplanes, but pilots too, and other crew members to make sure that we can sustain the fight. So, uh, you, you know, as the old saying goes, it takes about 10 years to uh, produce a 10-year fighter pilot uh, in the Air Force. And so, uh, you know, this is not a problem that can be solved overnight. Uh, and really, when we talk about a pilot shortage, it's really how we manage the inventory across year groups. You know, we have to have uh, sufficient numbers of pilots to, you know, to be squadron commanders one day and operations officers one day and those types of things. Uh, meanwhile, we have to have sufficient numbers in the junior ranks to fly the line every day. Uh, the things that we're thinking about with respect to uh, aircrew production is uh, how much can we absorb, right? So if, uh, if I uh, produce 
a hundred brand new wingmen uh, in any given uh, platform, it doesn't necessarily help a squadron to dump a hundred inexperienced uh, wingmen on that squadron commander. We have to be able to experience them. And so we call that absorption. And so what's our rate of absorption? What can we do to increase the rate at which we absorb uh, new pilots? And so that's some of the things that uh, we're talking about with respect to our operational tests and training infrastructure. That can help with the absorption challenge we have. It's the throughput of our of our pipeline, whether it's undergraduate pilot training or uh, flying training units that, that uh, qualify people in their airplanes. We're looking at a host of different changes we can make to increase the throughput of those. Some of it, we're just limited by plant capacity. Uh, you know, there's only so many takeoffs and landings that you can do at a pilot training base in a day. And so, you know, that plant capacity, we want to maximize that so we can get the, the maximum throughput. So a bunch of different variables. This gets into things like retention uh, and how many pilots choose to stay and how many choose to leave when they don't have a commitment remaining. Uh, it affects the uh, transferability among components. We want to make it as easy as possible for pilots to be able to spend time in, on the active duty, spend time in the guard, spend time in the reserve, and move back and forth uh, based on where they are in life. You know, we we all have life events, and it, it might be easier for somebody to manage their life events, not by leaving the Air Force, but by just associating with a different component inside the Air Force. And so kind of increasing the ability for folks to move back and forth among the components is, a, is another key part of it. That's a great perspective. Do we have any examples of folks who are in the Guard or Reserve who've come back on active duty yet? We do, and uh, what I can tell you about it is you've got to really want to do it uh, to work through the bureaucracy. And that's the, you know, we're looking at where are all the policy shortfalls Making that make that this harder yeah. than it needs to be? It's particularly hard uh, for the Guard because those are state assets. And uh, But for the Air Force Reserve, those are policy issues that we've got to work right. our way through. And, you know, if we need legislative uh, changes, we need to go to the Hill and talk to uh, our, our uh, uh, congressmen and women about the things that we that we would like them to consider changing. But uh, we've got to get our own bureaucratic house in order to right. smooth that out. I'm going to shift gears a, a little bit, uh, Jim, to the conflict in Ukraine. It certainly uh, emphasized the importance of munitions, uh, both from a capability as well as a capacity uh, perspective. Uh, and I think, and I believe you'd agree that we're seeing an era where the balance between direct attack munitions and standoff munitions is kind of evolving. Uh, at the same time, we got to pay attention to cost per effect, uh, I think, so that we don't price our way out of being able to sustain uh, operations. So could you talk to us a little bit on your thoughts on the on the munitions challenges that the Air Force faces? I, I can, and, uh, you know, I, I would say that if, if there is a set of um, lessons that we might draw from what we're seeing in Ukraine, uh, one of the first ones that, that uh, would occur to me uh, would be that um, this is what it looks like when neither side can uh, gain and sustain air superiority. Uh, and so, you know, the, both air forces uh, have largely been pushed back by the other's air defense systems and have, have largely been um, uh, you know, kept out of uh, performing uh, the types of effects that I think, you know, a, a modern Air Force could achieve if, if you could gain air superiority. So, you know, that that we, we tend to blow past that one and, and get straight to, you know, the cost of a Gimler's round or the cost of a 155 round or, or what have you. But at the end of the day, I think this is a case study in what happens without air superiority? This is this is what it looks like. Um, with respect to munitions specifically, um, you know we have optimized ourselves over the last thirty years uh, for industrial base efficiency. Uh, we have not uh, we have optimized ourselves to you know producing the minimum number of munitions required to execute our war plans. And, you know, when something comes up where we have a partner or an ally that has a need for munitions, you know, we don't have warehouses full of munitions sitting around waiting to be transferred. And so to do that comes at, at some cost to the, uh, to the um, Department of Defense. And so 
with respect to munitions, uh, we've heard some of our senior leaders talk about this in the in the past several weeks that you know we're looking at ramping up munitions productions uh, in a way that that provides some slack in the system and it's not a just-in-time capacity. The, the the industrial base has been optimized for efficiency, and we probably need to make some changes to that. And so I think that the department has recognized that, and and we're seeing some movement in that direction. Well, it's great to hear you say that, uh, because um, <laughs> for the last 30, 40 years, uh, the department, if I may, has been uh, entranced by business models. Uh, but the business of warfare is not like the business of selling products. And so just like you said, just-in-time delivery is wonderful for FedEx and Amazon, but it may not be the best thing for uh, the United States military. So uh, great to hear that. The other, the other point uh, that strikes me is that uh, in many cases, this really all boils down to a matter of resources as well. And so when the programmers are doing their work, there's not really a constituency out there during peacetime for munitions. So it tends to be a place where the programmers go to seek offsets when they're looking to fund other stuff. So I think the resource piece is important as well. Uh, speaking of stuff that's important, um, let me switch a little bit toward the fact that flying and fighting is extraordinarily important, but we also have to operate out of somewhere that's generally called an air base. And those air bases, if we're going to be employing fighters, um, are going to require to be defended. Uh, so we have this whole issue of air base defense becoming more and more important today than perhaps it has been over the last 20, 30 years. What are your thoughts in that regard? Well, I'm really encouraged uh, to uh, see that the Department of Defense has, has also taken note of this issue and is involved in some you know, foundational studies uh, to talk about base defense and roles and you know what capacity we need to defend our bases uh, what's the role of uh, camisa camouflage concealment and deception and in, in terms of uh, protecting our air bases you know i don't think we want to be on the um, side of the cost curve that involves uh, shooting down every incoming munition with a high dollar um, you know patriot or thad interceptor uh, and so how how do we approach uh, air-based defense, how do we build a more resilient force, uh, how do we make it harder for our adversaries to target us, and uh, where, where does the investment for those types of capabilities, where does that need to, need to reside? Very good. Now, um, before we move over to the audience for their questions, um, I can't not ask you about the importance that you put on allies and partners when you're thinking about the future. Uh, they obviously are extraordinarily important in terms of not just providing access, but also being able to contribute to the, the uh, foresizing part of the equation in the context of uh, capacity. Um, so uh, whether we're working our way through the bureaucratic challenges involved with information sharing, that's important to facilitate uh, a vision like JADC2, um, what are your thoughts on our partners and allies and how they can contribute to solving some of the challenges that you've already talked about today? Well, you know, when we talk about integrated by design, you'll hear this term. And the idea is that we have to start with the end in mind. We have to start by understanding that if we're going to field this capability alongside our partners and allies, we have to integrate that right up front instead of trying to uh, engineer it in backwards uh, at the end. And so, you know, we have an international coalition of operators of F-35s and information sharing has been a challenge in some cases. Uh, and so, really, the department is on the path of um, a, a fundamental relook at a lot of the security classification issues that have prevented us from being able to share with our closest allies and partners. Uh, and so, I'm pretty encouraged by where that, that's going. The Deputy Secretary of Defense uh, has really taken hold of this issue and is driving a lot of positive change from our perspective. Can't come fast enough, frankly, but uh, but we are moving quickly uh, towards removing a lot of the policy barriers that impede our ability to share with our closest 
allies and partners. The other thing that I would tell you is that as we think about our, our global force management processes where you know a combatant commander is asking for another fighter squadron, for example, one of the first questions that we're starting to ask ourselves is where are our regional partners and allies in this conversation? Do they have capacity that they would be willing to uh, contribute to a coalition effort um, so that the U.S. Air Force is not the sole provider of this capability to the to the joint force. And so just getting visibility and awareness on that in front of our department senior leaders is a, is a um, is a big step forward in my mind. Oh, thanks very much for that. Um, as you're talking, I, I can't help but think about um, the fact that we now have 17 different partners who are operating the F-35 uh, and being able to, to work hand in glove with them. Uh, obviously, you already alluded to it, but that means we need to be able to share information in an unconstrained uh, fashion, too. So. Um, that's a big one that we could spend a whole hour talking about, but um, let's not do that. Let's move toward um, our uh, Q&A session. Uh, and what I'd like you all to do out there in the audience, uh, you know the drill. Um, if I call on you, please unmute your mic and then uh, state your name and affiliation before uh, asking your question, or you can submit some as people already have um, through chat. Uh, but let's start now with uh, Stephen uh, Lucy, who's uh, got his hand up. Stephen, over to you. Hi, General Slife. Thank you very much for uh, talking to us today. Can you give us an update on the status of the Ospreys that have been grounded over the clutch issue? Um, how long will it be before the Ospreys, or at least your CV-22s, might have their input quill assemblies replaced and be back to flight status? And can you tell us how many have been returned to flight status so far and how many remain to have this work done? Yeah, so thanks, Stephen. I, the, uh, this is obviously a um, uh, topic that I have a little bit of familiarity with, with from my last, uh, my last role. So uh, what, I can, what I can tell you about that is the Joint Program Office um, is the one that has really stepped up in this, uh, in this instance and recognized that uh, this input quill um, issue is something that really does affect the whole fleet. Uh, we had a grounding in, in August, as you'll recall, uh, for, for the Air Force CV-22s, uh, but now it, it, it's broader than that. And so uh, with respect to the specific numbers, um, I would defer to the Air Force Special Operations Command and the Joint Program Office to get into the specific numbers of how many have been returned to flight and so forth. What I can tell you is that the Air Force CV-22s still have uh, um, V-22s that are flying, that are fulfilling the operational commitments, um, and, you know, we're anxious for industry to deliver uh, the new and improved input quill assemblies just as quickly as they can so we can get back in the air. I think, you know, this is probably a months-long uh, process and not a, not a weeks-long process, uh, but the Joint Program Office will be able to answer the specifics for you. Okay, great. Here's one from uh, Brian uh, Devine. Um, General Slife, the ACE Doctrine Note emphasizes the importance of the sustainment joint warfighting function uh, in the ACE construct. At the tactical and operational levels, what role do you see our logistics and maintenance personnel playing in mission planning, execution, and risk assessment in future ACE operations? Yeah, the, you know, the Two joint functions that I think are most affected by our uh, our ACE concept of operations are uh, the sustainment joint function and also the protection joint function. And so as we think about agile combat employment, that's really what we're talking about. And the force elements that, that we have to do that, this gets back to that force presentation thing that I was talking about earlier. How do we operationalize a lot of those capabilities that we have historically thought of uh, primarily because of the experience of the last 20 years as base operating support? You know, we've been operating out of large fixed uh, bases. We have not been operating in a, uh, you know, light 
footprint expeditionary kind of fashion. And so uh, because of that, these large fixed bases that we've been operating from for the last 20 years uh, largely look like our garrison installations. And so you have an operations group, a maintenance group, a support group, and so forth. Uh, but that may not necessarily be what it looks like going forward. And so as we continue to do our, our uh, force presentation work for the chief, uh, this issue of how do we uh, do the sustainment protection joint functions uh, and how do we organize ourselves to do that is kind of one of the central questions uh, that we're working our way through. But um, I, I do think it will be different uh, than what we've been doing for the last 20 to 30 years. It, it's just not yet clear exactly what that's going to look like. Okay, great. Um, I see uh, Frank Wolf has his hand up. So, Frank, over to you. Hello, Frank. Hi, uh, sorry. Yeah, hi, uh, Frank Wolf at uh, Defense Daily. Uh, uh, General, thank you for doing this. Um, I just want to go back to uh, collaborative combat aircraft for for a moment. Um, uh, just in terms of future F thirty five and and manned and gad squadrons, um, I, I just want to get any thoughts you may have on. Obviously, we may have from uh, I guess from what Secretary Kendall was saying, up to five uh, CCAs um, uh, accompanying uh, an F thirty five or or presumably an NGAD or B-21, but I just want to get your thoughts on how close we are to determining the that actual force mix per squadron or whatever we're going to call the entity that we're talking about in the future. Um, how close are we? When, when do you think we'll have some answer on um, on how many uh, uh, CCAs will will be assigned or or accompany uh, a fighter squadron? Is it still pretty early in the process or when, when do you think we'll have an answer and what are your thoughts on what that mix may look like uh, man versus unmanned per, per squadron or per whatever the entity is? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question. And uh, I would tell you, we, we, I think we're close to having a hypothesis of what that might look like, uh, but what but we're not ready to do is, uh, you know, put a thumbtack in that and start programming against a, uh, a conceptual idea of what that squadron of the future would look like. Uh, I, think we, I think we need a hypothesis to start with, that this is probably about what it looks like. And then, like I said before, we need to engage in some pretty rigorous wargaming, modeling, and simulation uh, work in order to find out whether, that, uh, whether we need to adjust our hypothesis to, to react to what we're finding in our, in our experimentation work. Uh, so I think we're probably um, uh, not far off from having a hypothesis on that, uh, but it's going to require some pretty rigorous data collection and experimentation before we're ready to, to say this is, uh, this is actually what that looks like. And what we may find is that the answer is it depends. It depends on uh, what types of CCAs we're talking about. There may be more than one type for different different roles. I don't think it's necessarily going to be a homogenous fleet. And so depending on the mission, it may be it may be different. You may need a different ratio, uh, for example, for an air superiority mission than you would uh, for a seed mission. Uh, and so how that how that plays out in the wargaming and experimentation uh, is going to inform our programming decisions going forward. But but I do think we're we're probably um, uh, looking at a hypothesis sooner rather than later. Thanks. Okay, let's switch over to uh, Brian uh, Everstein. Brian? On another future capability the Air Force is looking at, we had the RFI drop for next generation aerial fueling or NGAS. Can you talk a little bit about what the Air Force is looking at in the future of the tanking mission, are you looking for a higher priority on more fuel offloaded range, maybe smaller tankers that can get into smaller bases for the agile combat employment? Um, what are some of the kind of the top priorities in this area? And also, does this schedule that we're looking at have any impact on what the Air Force is looking at for KCY or bridge tanker? Thank you. 
Yeah, so with respect to what we're looking for, I think the, the RFI is, is to help inform our thinking on this. And so it's, it's essentially a query to industry to find out uh, what is in the realm of the, of the possible in the, in the time frame that we're looking at. What are the, what are the technologies that might be incorporated into a, a next generation uh, tanker? I think from an Air Force perspective, uh, we're, we're looking for uh, getting the most utility out of the, out of the platforms that we have. How do we uh, turn our tanker fleet into uh, uh, battle network airborne nodes, for example? And so whether it's a, a data link or communications relays or, or what have you, how do we turn our tankers into contributors uh, to the situational awareness that we're going to have to have in the future operating environment and what technologies are available that will help them do that. How can they be more survivable? How can they be put, how can we push them in closer to, uh, to the threats in order to execute their missions? These are the types of things that I think the Air Force is interested in and the purpose of the RFI is just to get a sense from industry as to what's in the realm of the possible, what should we be thinking about as we craft our requirements documents going forward. So um, I think this is a, it, it's a good preliminary step, uh, but I think it's too soon to tell exactly what the effect of that on, on, uh, on our, tech, our, our tanker modernization plan might be. So for example, we might find that uh, really the, the technology horizon is pushed out about as far as we can push it with our current tanker modernization roadmap. And so we may not, uh, we may not change that a whole lot. We may find that, that we have overlooked uh, some key developments or opportunities for improving our, our air refueling capability. And so that might have a significant change on our, on our tanker modernization roadmap. So I think it's probably too soon to tell until we hear back from industry in response to this RFI, but we're pretty excited about uh, making the, the tankers of the future um, contributors to, to more than just um, passing fuel uh, from one platform to another. Okay, here's one from uh, John Turpak at uh, Air Force Magazine. And John asks, the uh, Air Force's last attempt at force sizing was 2018 with the presentation of the force we need of 386 operational squadrons. Um, isn't that still relevant? And uh, is that a good starting point for further discussion or do we need a fresh start? I think it's a starting point. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure that, uh, that that is the end of the conversation. So uh, that, 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 force sizing construct assumes that the force presentation construct remains the squadron, that squadrons are the things that we're going to present. And in fact, what we're seeing uh, inside the, the joint force right now, for example, when, when they ask for AWACS, they don't ask for an AWACS squadron, they ask for a singular airplane. When they ask for a fighter squadron, they're not asking for 24 airplanes, they're asking for 12. And so, you know, you get to this question of what what is a squadron? I mean, if it might be 386, uh, but un until we understand what the force presentation model is, I think it's, it's probably uh, preliminary to talk about a sizing construct that goes along with that. It's probably not wildly off the mark, but uh, but we won't know until we uh, get a little more fidelity on the on the force uh, presentation model before we get into that force sizing business. Excellent. Here's one from Colonel Nyland. Uh, General Slipe, regarding a force presentation construct along the same lines, the Air Force has historically struggled with determining and sourcing our air power enabling functions, such as command and control and battle management. Does the Air Force need organic command and control down to the squadron level, like the Army does at the battalion level? And how do we account for AWACS, JSTARS, and forward base operating support in a force presentation construct? Well, that, uh, you know, this, every year the Air Force has a uh, command and control summit. And uh, the last several command and control summits have uh, have been discussions about command and control. The most recent one, I would tell you, uh, was actually really, really encouraging to me because it got into exactly the types of questions that, that you're asking. And, you know, I think 
historically, we, we have had a little bit of confusion in the force about what we're talking about when we use the term command and control. At the simplest uh, level, command and control is one of the seven joint functions. And so the question is, how do we execute that? Do we execute it uh, through um, the, the theater air control system? Um, is it all executed at a thing called an air operations center? How much of that is distributed forward? How much of that is, is handled by our airborne and ground nodes? Uh, I think we, we sometimes confuse things like the AOC with command and control. The, the AOC is a place. Uh, it, it's not command and control by itself. The systems inside the AOC are not command and control. They're just tools that enable the joint function of command and control. And so our, you know, our, our, um, our new Air Force doctrine talks about this in terms of mission command. Uh, and it specifically uses the term mission command and not command and control. And it says that airmen execute mission command uh, through uh, centralized command, distributed control, and decentralized execution. And this issue of distributed control is really at the heart of your question. Uh, we're seeing some pretty innovative work going on uh, across, our, uh, across our C2 enterprise, uh, both with um, our, our airborne AEW nodes, with uh, our ground nodes, um, you know, the expansion of our TACP um, mission area beyond just controlling close air support uh, for supported Army units, but rather getting into being extensions of our theater air control network. Uh, it's really, um, this, this is a pretty fertile time for uh, this field of command and control. Uh, so there is, uh, there is a lot of work going on in this area, but I, but I take your point and I think you're right. Uh, we have not framed the problem correctly um, in, in many cases, but I'm, I'm pretty uh, enthusiastic about where we are now. Thanks. Um, well, General Slife, I've been doing these aerospace nations for about, I don't know, three years now since we had COVID. And I've saved the best question to last, which could be the best question I've ever seen in three years of doing this with a variety of senior leaders. And How it, do I keep my hair so thick and lustrous? <laughs> yeah, well, let me know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but this is from a high school student, uh, a cadet, Cami Chase. And the question is, what does your ideal future of the U.S. Air Force look like and how can future generations contribute to this mission? My goodness, that is uh, that is a fantastic question. What is my ideal future of the Air Force? Is that yeah. what the question right. was? The right. ideal future of the Air Force? Um, <clears throat> so I think air power uh, can play a decisive role uh, in deterring uh, and fighting and winning our nation's wars. And so... Um, the question to me, that, you know, is how do we put ourselves in a position for uh, future airmen to be able to, to do that? And at the end of the day, that's who we're building this Air Force for. It's not for me. Uh, I'll be long gone before any of the things we're talking about today are, are manifest inside the Air Force. You know, there's a bunch of middle school kids that 10 years from now are going to put on a U.S. Air Force name tape. And those kids are going to inherit the Air Force that people like me have our fingerprints on today. And so the Air Force that I would build would be an Air Force that gets the most out of every airman. You know, I... Uh, we, we tend to be fairly enamored with our platforms, but I really do believe to the very core of my, bearing, uh, my being uh, that the competitive advantage of the United States Air Force is the United States Airmen. Uh, it's not the platforms. You know, you said in your opening comments that uh, we're going to go to war with the Air Force that, that we have at, at any given point in time. And, and, and that's exactly right. Uh, and so the question is, how do we posture the airmen of the future uh, to be most successful with the Air Force that, that they have, whatever that looks like? And so uh, for me, the ideal future of the Air Force is an Air Force that is decentralized. Uh, it's focused around mission-centric teams and not function-centric teams. And uh, it, is, uh, it, it is an Air Force that empowers airmen at 
the lowest possible level. This is a place where we excel, and we need to do more of it. We need to we need to put the future of the Air Force in the hands of lieutenants and captains and staff sergeants and tech sergeants, because they're the ones that will actually be the competitive advantage for the future. So my ideal future of the Air Force is one that's decentralized, airmen are empowered, and we're focused on mission-centric teams. Uh, that's the Air Force that I would build, and, and that's certainly uh, what, I'm, what I'm helping the chief with today. That's a great question, and I hope when you put on uh, a U.S. Air Force name tape, uh, I hope that's the Air Force that you find. Um, it, it is a enormously rewarding line of work, and, and uh, there's no place I'd rather be, and I hope you feel the same uh, when you put on an Air Force uniform. Well, that's a great way to wrap this up. Uh, General Slife, we really appreciate you being here today. Um, unfortunately, we've come to the end of this uh, Aerospace Nation uh, and to our audience uh, and to you. We wish you uh, to have a great aerospace power kind of day. So thanks for being here. Thank you, sir.